Hi, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. I want to give a shout out to the ladies of the West Campus. They are also studying the Word of God with us today. So welcome, West Campus. We're glad you're here with us also. It is a great, great day to be studying the Word of God together. So I am thrilled that you are all here with us today. Okay, so I think the most dangerous thing that you can give a grandmother is a smartphone. And let me, uh, let me tell you my reason for that. If you've been standing around a group of grandmothers recently, one of them whips out their smartphone and shows a picture of a grandbaby. And then everybody in the group also has 10,000 pictures of grandbabies on their smartphones. And we have videos and all sorts of things. In the olden days, we all had to rummage around in our purses and maybe come up with one or two photos of grandbabies, and now we can just whip them out, all those grandbaby photos. And I am the worst offender because I have seven absolutely fabulous grandbabies, stair-step in ages six, five, four, three, two two-year-olds, and a 10-month-old. So I have more pictures probably than anybody in the room. Um, and my latest great thing to snap pictures of is the two two-year-olds who are cousins. Their names are Ben and Riker. Ben and Riker are playing soccer now. They're going to a two-year-old soccer practice called Soccer Shots. Now, Ben and Riker are both younger siblings. And so, for their entire lives, since they were both newborns, they have had to sit on the sidelines in the stroller brigade and watch the older siblings play with balls. I mean, even as five and six month olds, I could tell they would think, what, what's the deal here? Why am I strapped in? And they're all out there having great fun with the soccer balls. So when they started their little soccer practice a couple of weeks ago, I went, of course, because Gigi likes to see everything. So I went to take some pictures. And the second I got there, Riker ran up to me with the biggest smile ever and said, Riker soccer practice. Riker shoot and score. And so he was naming it and claiming it. He was making it known that he was no longer the baby on the sidelines. From now on, he and Ben were part of the big boys on the field playing the game. It was a milestone in their lives. As we continue today with Paul's letter to Galatians, what we see today in chapter 4 is that it's Paul who's wanting the Galatians to get up from the sidelines, unstrap themselves from the baby strollers, and move from new believers in Christ to maturity in Christ. And you know, above all else, Paul values maturity. He values maturity. He wants everyone uh, to live in the truth, to walk in obedience, to connect with the body of Christ and serve and share and worship together. You read it throughout Paul's letters. In fact, we're going to read a lot about it in Ephesians when we start Ephesians in a couple of weeks together. Look at what Paul says about growing up from being children in 1 Corinthians 14 on your verse sheet. He says, 
Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in the evil, but in your thinking be mature. So we're going to read together this morning and see how Paul goes about addressing spiritual immaturity in the Galatians' lives and what we can learn from his uh, letter to them. So read with me in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So Paul starts out right here in chapter 4 with a great illustration of what immaturity looks like. It looks like a young child that even though he owns the entire uh, plantation or uh, kingdom or whatever it is, he's not able to direct it. He has guardians and uh, trustees that are over him all day, every day. They're the ones that make the decision. They're the ones that tell him whether to get up or go to bed or do this or do that. He is essentially a slave to those who are in charge. Now, Paul compares that immaturity uh, of the young child under a guardian to the spiritual immaturity that existed, according to verse 3, for both the Gentiles and the Jews. And that spiritual immaturity took the form of both of them being in bondage. For the Gentiles, it meant they were in bondage probably to idol worship. Their world was filled with idol worship, and that's what they were enslaved to. For the Jews, it meant that they were in bondage to the law. So whether they were Jew or Gentile, they were spiritually immature. They were in bondage to what Paul calls here elemental spiritual forces of the world. He goes on to point out, however, there is a point in the natural world when a child becomes an adult. Uh, and the father has the ability and the authority to determine when that moment is in the lives of his sons and daughters when they're old enough to take responsibility and to have privileges of adulthood. You know, many cultures have rites of passages for when children transfer from that stage of being under a guardian and under authority to being able to make their own decisions. The Romans had such a rite of passage that young men would be, begin to wear a different robe to signify their adulthood. Uh, in our culture today, the Hispanics have a rite of passage. I think it's called quinceanera, when the young women are considered uh, no longer girls, but young women. Um, Paul's most important point here is not about how human fathers designate when a child becomes an adult. His most important point is verse 4. 
how God was able to determine when the time was right for his children to transition from the immaturity of living under the law to living by faith in Christ. When God said, hey kids, it's time to grow up. You don't need that guardian or trustee of the law anymore. We are going to move from law to grace because you are adults now. That's what Paul means when he says, but in the fullness of time, God sent his son. When God himself, God and only God, determined that the time was right for his children to transition from slaves to sons, He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to redeem his children from the bondage of the law and give them the rights and privileges of heirs of the kingdom. Verses 4 and 5 here have some great theology in them. You may want to underline some of those passages because in verse 4, it actually talks about two things. It talks about God's, uh, Jesus' divine nature as God's son, and it talks about his human nature because he was born of a woman. And verse 5 tells us the two reasons that God sent his son. The first one was he sent him to redeem people from the bondage of the law. The second reason was he sent them, him also to give them full rights and complete rights as adopted sons and daughters of the Most High King through Jesus' incarnation and death and burial. Look at what 1 Peter 18 says about our redemption. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. So what Paul shares with the Galatians in this part of his letter uh, is that the Galatians who've been trying so hard to take themselves out of freedom and put themselves back into slavery, he tells them that God sent Jesus as his only son on a mission, a mission that was divinely planned, a mission that was divinely timed, a mission whose purpose was to free people from bondage to the law and give them the status of a beloved family member with everything that that includes in their lives privileges, perks, responsibility, the same things that mature sons and daughters have when they finally grow to adulthood and inherit the whole kingdom. And it's all because of Christ's work on the cross. Verse 6 tells us that because they're sons and daughters, now through the Spirit of God, they have the ability to have an intimate close relationship with God as full-fledged heirs of the kingdom as children that trust God and know God loves them in return. That was something when they were under bondage to the law that they felt like they had to earn. And now through Jesus' finished work on the cross, it's simply theirs as a free gift. What Paul can't understand, knowing that the Galatians have truly gone from being slaves to being sons, what he can't understand, he talks about in verses 8 through 11, he can't understand why the Galatians started out their lives as a people group um, under bondage to idol worship. There were idols all around them that they 
felt like they had responsibilities to all of the time. So they start out in slavery to false gods. Then they gain this incredible, amazing status as sons of the king of the universe. But now they're going to willingly walk themselves backwards into bondage, into slavery, uh, through the law. Paul can't understand that. It's just beyond his comprehension. Think back to Riker and Benjamin with me a little bit. If you had seen those two little guys and all their little two-year-old friends finally out of the strollers running around on the fields, each one had their own little soccer ball. They had their own a little goal to play with. There is nothing that would make either one of them go back into the stroller. You can imagine the kicking and the screaming that would have happened if we had all of a sudden stopped them in the middle and said, okay, now we're going to latch you black in that stroller and you're going to be in bondage again on the sidelines. But not so with the Galatians. They're doing it willingly. They're climbing into the stroller themselves and locking themselves in. They are going back to bondage on their own. Paul shows his strong feelings about how he feels about their choice in verses 9 to 11 when he says, how can you turn back to the weak and the worthless? The idol worships you once were a part of were weak and worthless, and now you're going back to the weak and the worthless. And he says that he fears that his time with them has been wasted. And that is a sad statement on Paul's part, that he would feel like the time he spent with the Galatians that he had valued so much and had such value to the kingdom of God was wasted. You know, Paul's lesson to the Galatians right here, the point he's trying to make to the Galatians, give us a great lesson about maturity in our own lives today too. Because spiritual maturity Maturity in Christ means standing firm on our faith and on the truth of God's principles so that we don't make the same mistake that the Galatians have uh, made. Having freedom that is ours as a free gift of God and choosing to go backwards uh, towards some unsound doctrine. It means being aware that we have an ungodly culture around us, don't we? We live in a post Christian world. The world around us offers every day an opportunity for us as Christians to go backwards, doesn't it? To stop living the identity that we all possess as believers in Christ and begin living like we used to live uh, when we were pagan idol worshipers. It's a slippery slope. And that slippery slope doesn't go anywhere but downhill. And it will do that in our lives if we don't Plant our feet firmly on the truth of God's word and decide consciously, make an intentional decision to stand there. Uh, when my husband Billy was in high school, he had a great uh, group of high school friends and they would head out on the weekends to a ranch that one of the families owned. It was on the Brazos River and these group of guys uh, every weekend loved to go out there and hunt and fish and camp and play king of the mountain on the banks of the Brazos River. Now, of course, that was over 40 years ago, so as my husband tells it now, he was a great champion at king of the mountain on the Brazos River. In his mind, he had never been defeated on king of the mountain on the Brazos River, and he was a big, strong guy, so there may be some truth in that. Uh, but one night, around midnight, they decided they were going to play king of the mountain in the dark on the Brazos River. Um, 
and they were going to gang up on him and throw him in. Now the river was full and rushing, and he said what happened is they did finally manage to throw him in, and the minute he hit the river in the dark, it was so full and rushing that he was downstream in a second, hundreds of yards downstream. He said he lost his glasses, and he thought he was going to lose his life too there in the dark on the Brazos River. Fortunately, he was a big, strong guy, and he finally managed to grab hold of a branch on the uh, bank and pull himself out. Now, looking back, he realizes how foolish he was to choose to stand in the dark on the banks of a rushing river and invite people to throw him in. Invite people to throw him in. But, you know, sometimes in our lives, too, we make those same foolish choices, don't we? We agree we put ourselves in situations where we agree to stand on the banks of a rushing river in the dark and invite people to throw us in in some form or fashion in some form or fashion he realizes now that it would have been a much wiser voice a choice for him to say hey guys i'm going to stand firm over here on the solid ground and if you guys want to play king of the mountain in the dark, a rushing river, go right ahead. But I'm standing firm here. That's the same choice we have every day, ladies, is to choose to stand firm on the truth of God's word and not let the post-Christian culture around us or our friends or anyone else have the opportunity to throw us in the rushing river. Maturity means we plant our feet solidly on the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 16 on your verse sheet. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. To stand firm. If the Galatians had listened to Paul and stood firm on the truth of who they knew Jesus Christ to be and how they had obtained their salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, the false teachers would have had no part in their lives. Okay, let's read some more. Verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Here in verse 12, Paul begins to talk about the time that he spent with the Galatians when he preached to them on his first missionary journey. While he lived with them for those months, he lived as a Gentile. 
Now, he was a Jew with a background as a Pharisee, and yet he knew he was free in Christ once for all. So while he was with the Galatians, he lived free as a Gentile, free from the restrictions of the law. And now he's urging them to remember how he did it, to remember his example and to follow in the freedom that he lived in while he was with them. He also reminds them here that he had some significant health issues while he was with them, and yet they loved him, and they cared for him, and they sacrificed for him, and they did it all because he had offered them the amazing gift of salvation uh, through Jesus Christ alone. They loved him for that. They loved him for that, and he was their friend, and his illness was no burden to them at all. In fact, they cared about him so much that he says in verse 15 that they would have gladly given up their own good health for the sake of Paul. Now, we don't know what Paul's illness was. Um, some suggest it was malaria. Others think he may have had some form of epilepsy or migraine headaches. And some think it had to do with his eyes because he talks here about the Galatians giving uh, him their healthy eyes. But, you know, what was wrong with him is not important. But what is important is how their feelings for him have changed. They cherished him once as a friend, and now all of a sudden they're suspicious of him, and he realizes that they see him as an enemy, as an enemy, instead of doing what we just talked about and standing firm on the truth that Paul had left with them. They're listening to false teachers. They're listening to false teachers who, according to verses 17 and 18 here, Paul says, hey, they're just flattering you guys and buttering you up so that you're no longer going to be under my influence. The false teachers want to drive a wedge between Paul and the Galatians so that the Galatians will no longer listen to Paul. They want that. They want it for their own selfish motives. You know, now Paul has been a lot of things in his life, and certainly he was a passionate apostle, but he always shared the gospel for the right reasons. It was never about Paul. He never uh, shared the gospel, so he would have a big following or be a popular guy. Um, I doubt if he was a popular guy. If you've read Paul's story in Acts, you know he spent most of his time in prison. Uh, it was never about his popularity or his following in Paul's life, it was simply about Jesus and the salvation that he offered as a free gift. The false teachers, however, were in it for their own selfish motives, and Paul desperately wanted the Galatians to figure that out. Do you not understand here? They don't really care about you. They care about themselves. So what they're teaching you isn't for your own good. It's because they want a following. Paul's affections for the Galatians comes through in verse 19. He loves these people. He loves these people, and he calls them his children, and he compares himself to a mother who's in the anguish of childbirth. And this is actually the only time in the scriptures that Paul uh, makes reference to himself as a mother. I don't think he was probably a very motherly guy, but he's trying to get across here to them that his feelings for them are maternal. He wants the very best for them, just like moms want the very best for the children, their children. And the very best that he wants for them is that they would mature in Christ. He says that in verse 19, that Jesus would be formed in them. 
He wants them to go from baby believers to mature believers who live their lives based on the truth and not based on the flattery of anyone around them. Colossians 1.27 really shows Paul's passion for his mission in life for others to have maturity in Christ. It says, To them God chose to make known great among the Gentiles are the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I told struggling with all his energy that so powerfully works in me. This is Paul's mission in life, that those that have heard the gospel would continue to grow in the truth of who Jesus is. And it's his reason for confronting the Galatians, because since he's left them, they've gone from being um, secure in their salvation to running around like fools in their desires to become slaves to the law. It's left Paul, according to verse 20, in great doubt and perplexed. And he even wishes he didn't have to write a letter that has this tone of admonishment to it. Deb told us uh, in week one when we talked about Galatians, this is the only letter that he writes without a lot of encouraging words when he opens it up. The Galatians have gone from loving him as a friend to treating him as an enemy simply because he's told them the truth about their actions. That's another great lesson for us from Paul on maturity. You know, maturity really does mean listening when wise and discerning friends tell us the truth. Wendy made a great point last week when she taught her lesson on Galatians 3 because Wendy talked about how we have to be bold enough to approach people that are straying outside of the truth. And this is the flip side of that coin. The flip side is when someone approaches us, we have to be willing to listen. Your heart has to be soft enough that you're willing to say, I hear what you're saying and I need to take it under advisement. If you went and remember Wendy's story, that's really what happened with her friend. Her friend listened and went back and changed her Facebook page because she had posted something that was not God's truth on her Facebook page. But you know what the struggle here is um, and the reason it's hard to do is we have the wrong idea about our friends. We think that our friends uh, should always agree with us. We think that our friends should take up our causes and our actions and support us in whatever it is we're thinking, feeling, doing. But the truth is, a true friend cares more about our holiness than they do about our happiness. That's really the key here to a true friend. Uh, is your friend caring about your holiness or about your happiness? And that's Paul's anguish here. He's not simply writing a sweet little letter to the Galatians because he wants them to be happy. Paul's writing a hard and difficult letter to the Galatians because he wants them to mature in Christ. It's his, their holiness he's concerned about. Uh, 20 years ago, in fact, it may have been more than 20 years ago, I had a sweet and a precious friend that I spent a lot of time with and I mentored. We studied the scriptures together. And then over a period of time, she began to move in her life in a direction uh, that seemed counter to the word of God. Uh, because I was her friend, I felt like God had given me the responsibility to really approach her 
on some of her choices. And so we sat down one day and she told me about her life. And, and the only thing I said to her really was, tell me how this lines up with the truth of Scripture. And from that moment on, the door to our friendship was closed. Uh, I, I understand how Paul feels here because in the space of a short few minutes, a close, um, loving relationship, I became um, an enemy to her by the time that conversation was over. It was painful, and I'd love to tell you that relationship today has been restored, but um, it never has really been restored, although I still love her, and I think in her heart of hearts she still loves me. Um, I watched her go on to make choices that did what we talked about, uh, King of the Mountain on the Brazos River. She allowed people to throw her in a rushing stream, and it carried her away from the truth. Maturity, having Christ formed in us, which is what Paul seeks for the Galatians here, means listening to truth when our wise and discerning friends love us enough to tell us the truth. Look at Proverbs 27 with me on your verse sheet. 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And 27.16 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. You know, if we are mature in our faith and in our relationship with Christ, then friends should not become enemies because they love us enough to tell us the truth. Okay, so let's finish with Paul. Let's start with verse 21 here. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So Paul begins this part of his letter with a challenge to the Galatians. He says to them, hey, if you guys value the law so highly that you're willing to put yourselves under it, you probably need to know what it says and what it means. And so he uses Genesis here, which is one of the five Old Testament books of the law written by Moses. And he turns to Abraham, who is the founder of the Jewish nation, to make this great point to the Galatians. Now, uh, and I'm going to put a plug in here for the spring study. We're going to be studying Genesis beginning with Abraham in the spring. So if you thought this was confusing or were uncertain, uh, come back in the spring and we are going to be looking at it all in depth. 
Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and Ishmael's mother was a slave in the household of Abraham, and Isaac's mother was Sarah, Abraham's wife, and she was a free woman. Now, there is another difference also uh, besides their uh, mothers, Ishmael and, between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was born just as a natural consequence of a physical relationship that Abraham had with this slave woman. She was a young woman of childbearing age, and as a result of Abraham's relationship with her, she got pregnant, a natural course of events, and she had Isaac. Uh, she had Ishmael, excuse me. Now, Isaac, however, was a different matter. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren all of their married life. She had never given him any children, but when she was 90 and Abraham was 100, she conceives a child as a result of God's supernatural promise to give Abraham heirs. Look at uh, Genesis 17 on your verse sheet. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. So Ishmael is born naturally from the slave woman, and Isaac circum, uh, was born supernaturally from the free woman. So what Paul does here is use this story and the circumstances around Isaac and Ishmael to make his point to the Galatians. He describes Hagar, the slave woman, as representing the Mosaic Covenant, which was made on Mount Sinai. And under the Mosaic Covenant, the nation of Israel lived in bondage to the law. That's what they're wanting to put themselves back under, the Mosaic Covenant living in bondage of the law. He also says in verse 24 that um, she represents... Uh, Hagar represents first century Jerusalem, which they should have figured out, oh yeah, that's probably not a good idea because first century Jerusalem is presently not only under the law, but guess what? They're also enslaved to the Roman Empire. Sarah, the free woman, the mother of Isaac, actually represents the heavenly city of Jerusalem, which is an incredible future destination of all believers, everyone who is not under the law but is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, their eternal destination is going to be the heavenly city of Jerusalem. And Paul equates that to the grace and the freedom that everyone that has salvation in Christ will have. In verse 27, he quotes Isaiah 54, 1, which was a little confusing right here in the middle of this text. But what he's trying to point out um, is the changing circumstances of Israel. Throughout uh, the history of Israel, their circumstances have changed. The woman with the husband is Israel before the Babylonian captivity. The barren woman here is Israel during the Babylonian captivity. And the woman bearing more children is Israel and the millennial kingdom, which has riches and blessings. So which would you rather be? Would you rather be in captivity, barren, or would you rather be uh, in the millennial kingdom because of our Lord Jesus Christ? 
Paul finishes chapter 4 after telling them all this information about Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael and the conditions in um, Israel throughout history by trying to apply it to the Galatians and hoping they understand the hymn. In verse 28, he applies it by saying, you are like Isaac because you have all experienced a supernatural birth made possible by God's promises. Your birth wasn't a natural occurrence like Ishmael. Look at John 3.3 on your verse sheet. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born again is a supernatural occurrence that comes about because of faith in Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 9, 8, and 9 on your verse sheet. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. The Galatians, and in fact all of us in this room today, are just like Isaac. We are part of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. It came about supernaturally, and we are recipients of the promise of salvation. Look at Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's a truth for all of the Galatians and all of us in this room today. We are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In verse 29, Paul goes to the story of Ishmael, of Ishmael taunting and persecuting Isaac. It's back in Genesis 21. We don't have time to read it today. You may want to read it later. But uh, he relates Ishmael's taunting, the, the son of the slave woman taunting the son of the woman he relates it to the false teachers opposing the and persecuting the Galatians as believers the false teachers who are in bondage to the law do not want the Galatians to experience the freedom that they have uh, that faith in Christ has brought them and you know we see the same thing all over the world today with Christians being opposed and sometimes even persecuted by non-Christians simply because we live in freedom and not under the rules of the world. It's the same picture that we saw of the um, ISIS uh, leaders executing Christians on the beach for no other reason than simply they were Christians. And you know, there's nothing more legalistic in today's world than uh, the law that the uh, Muslim ISIS leaders live under. That is as strict and as legalistic as you can get. One theologian I read said, legalists always persecute those living in liberty. It's almost like misery loves company. If I'm going to have to live under this strict law, I'm going to make sure there's not a smile on your face because you were in freedom. If I'm going to stay in bondage, I want you to do the same. Now, the Galatians were fortunate enough to have been freed from the flesh. They are fortunate enough to have been blessed by grace through faith alone. But Paul wants them to know here that even with their blessing, there's still going to be legalists in the world that are going to want to oppose you and to persecute you, and you're going to have to stand up to that. Maturity means you know that's coming, and you stand firm, and you listen to people when they tell you that you are falling into legalism. 
It's interesting, if you know Paul's life, most of his persecution came at the hands of the um, uh, Jewish people who were in bondage to the law. Wherever Paul went preaching freedom, someone in bondage was trying to persecute him. Paul makes one final application in verse 30, and it has to do with the obligation that the Galatians have to rid themselves of false teachers. If you go back and read Genesis 21, the end of that Ishmael and Isaac story is that Sarah sees uh, Ishmael taunting and teasing her son Isaac, the son of the promise. And so she asked Abraham to put Ishmael and his mom out. And Abraham goes to God and God instructs him to do that. Sarah does not want her son to become a joint heir with the son of the slave woman. Paul's point to the Galatian here is similar and simple. Those who believe that they are justified by works do not share in the inheritance of those who are justified by faith. And he wants the Galatians, if they get nothing else out of this, he wants them to know there is no joint inheritance in the kingdom for the people that are justified by works and the people that are justified by faith. Inheritance in the kingdom comes only because you are justified by faith alone. So you must put out those people who want to be heirs in the kingdom by their works. Paul finishes chapter 4. He simply lays it out one more time, the dramatic difference between the Galatians and the false teachers. The Galatians continue to live, um, I mean, the false teachers continue to live under the flesh, slaves to bondage. The Galatians and Paul and all of us here today are children of the free women, saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We live and walk by the Spirit our final lesson on maturity uh, from Paul here today uh, is that we must also cast out unsound doctrine that will, ca that will lead us astray. You know, Paul's not talking about here putting out people that are part of our churches that have that personality of control and legalism. They think church should only be at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning and never at 5 o'clock on Sunday evening. That's a personality event. It's not someone intent on a doctrine to change the church. Paul is emphatic, however, that when we do find an unsound doctrine that wants to take people captive, uh, we can't ignore it. Maturity means we must address those who are promoters of unsound doctrine and legalism, especially if they're not open to correction and teaching. In 2010, I had just the great joy and opportunity to go to a city in Tanzania called Mwanza on, lake, on the shores of Lake Victoria with a team of great gals here from Christ Chapel. We went to teach a women's leadership conference for the area churches there around Lake Victoria. Now, the conference was attended by women from all these different districts in that general vicinity around Lake Victoria. And they had been chosen and recruited by the bishops that oversaw the different districts there. Um, 
what was interesting about this particular conference, and we had done the same thing in other places, so we were familiar, but this particular conference, these bishops, these pretty imposing African men came beginning the first day of the conference and they had a table set up in the conference room um, with chairs and they sat at this long table and faced all these women that were in the room. And what that meant was that as teachers, we had to come up and stand in front of this long table of pretty imposing African bishops and teach. We would not experienced this before, so we were kind of inquiring um, of the Africans that had brought us there to do the conference. Okay, so what is this with all the African bishops behind us? It feels um, a little um, imposing. What they told us was that the African bishops wanted to make sure that we were teaching sound doctrine to their women. So they were going to be there every day in the flesh hearing every word that we had to teach. They were there to do exactly what Paul would have done if he had been sitting behind us. If we began to lead their women astray with unsound doctrine, they were going to cast us out. I'm not sure exactly what would have happened to us, but I could picture us being drugged out of the um, there if we had unsound doctrine. Fortunately, they loved what we taught. They thought uh, that we were on track with the word of truth, and we became great friends with all those bishops before we left. But they were mature believers, and they were prepared to act if our teaching did not line up with the word of God. Look what Paul says in Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. And Colossians 2.8 says, See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Maturity in the church and in us as individual believers means that we look for and cast out anything that leads us from the truth. So as we finish chapter 4, what we see is that Paul's heart's desire for the Galatians and for each one of us here today, if he was sitting behind me right now, uh, listening, is that we would grow up to be mature followers of Christ. We would be mature followers who stand firm in the truth, knowing that we are no longer slaves, but we are sons, who, st who listen to trusted friends, not making friends our enemies just because they love us enough to tell us the truth. And we always cast out anything that is not the truth, always walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. Paul shares his hope that we would all continue to mature in Christ in Ephesians 4.15. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the word of truth. We're grateful for the Apostle Paul who was so passionate about those that he loved becoming mature in Christ. Lord, I pray that each of us would have that same spirit here, that we would have a heart and a desire to grow more like Christ every single day, that we would 
have that same heart's desire for everyone around us. Lord, we're grateful for the word of truth. We're even more grateful for the gift of grace that was made possible by our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies.